As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. You're listening to the Tom Pickman Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Your home for community radio. Salutations, New Haven. Salutations, Michigan. Salutations, Connecticut. And salutations, the world. Today, we're going to be talking about the important work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is under attack from right-wing presidential candidates, governors across the country. And I'd I'd rather than fight the attack, I'd like to really focus on what Goldie Mohammed, who wrote a wonderful, wonderful book, Cultivating Genius, Genius, about uh, culturally relevant and historically relevant responsive literacy instruction, a great book with a great framework, wrote a second book that said this, this work is rooted in joy and brings out the joy in teachers and students. So today is a celebration of the joy of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And by the way, let's start off with uh, our new provost. Julian, could you introduce yourself? Great. I'm uh, Julian Vasquez Heilig. I'm currently serving as uh, provost and vice president of academic affairs at Western Michigan University. I'm so glad to join you on community radio today, uh, engage in this critical discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, this work is crucial, crucial, crucial to our nation's present and future well-being. Uh, we, we need to emphasize the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Perfect, perfect. Rose, can you introduce yourself? You wear many hats. Oh, yeah, but I, I'm your sidekick mostly, right? Uh, by we, are, we are good friends. Yeah, found, uh, co- um, I was on the second tier of Connecticut Bats, Badass Teachers Association, uniting to save our schools with you, good professor. Uh, I am a steward, vice president of our local union. I'm on town council as a Working Families Party uh, representative in Wyndham, uh, 20 years in bilingual education, right? That's right. I think I got them all, right? I think <laughs> you got them all. All around Rabble Rouser. You also uh you also have the honor of living with Coco, the fabulous dog that the, wears that sign that says no more testing. <laughs> the all equity right. So an equity warrior as well. And we focused, we we've had Coco in our, our, our post before. But let me start off with asking this question. Wait, wait, right. Mr. Ricardo, Professor Ricardo's in. Oh, Ricardo's here now. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right, oh, yes. Okay, uh, Ricardo, could you introduce yourself for us? And I'm so glad you were able to join us. Sure, greetings, greetings. And I apologize that I have to join from the, the car. Uh, my name is Ricardo Rosa. I'm a former professor of educational leadership and public policy at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Uh, I'm currently uh, the Director of Training and Professional Learning for the Massachusetts Teachers Association and a longtime community organizer, uh, activist in my area, Massachusetts. 
glad to be here. Perfect, perfect. All right. I'd, I'd like us to, to start off with maybe sharing What's some it? personal examples. I think Ricardo, you're frozen. Oh, you're back. So I'd like us to start off with sharing some personal examples of, of that moment when maybe in school, in your life, you realized uh, that you saw yourself in the books, the learning, you found your history, you found your ancestry, you found what, what when I worked on the Tohoto Author Reservation in Arizona, Davis would call the center of the universe. So maybe we'll start with Julian and we'll come back to it. Uh, Rose and then you, Ricardo. All right, Jesse, you're going to okay. drop that. You're going to drop that on me. <laughs> I'm dropping it on you because you're cloaking in equity. You're, you're uh, like me and me and viewers, uh, followers. Uh, yeah. We've been following you for a long time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I think one of the interesting things for me um, is that I've had this uh special opportunity uh, in my life to actually live um, in, in two communities of color. Um, my father is, is African-American. Um, you know, uh, they work, my family were union, UAW, worked in the auto factories before that. They were uh, United Mine Workers in, um, in, in West Virginia. My, my mother is, is Mexican-American and they, they moved north um, uh, to do migrant work. Uh, they picked cherries and cucumbers in, in, in Michigan. And so I, I've had the, the fortunate experience to, um, to experience the world from, from, from two different uh, American racial ethnic uh, communities um, and, and all the joy uh, that comes with, with those interactions. But I think for me, um, when when I went to college, I was able to um, see diversity in its in its full spectrum. Um, I, I went to a high school that was uh, fairly homogenous, um, and uh, I was able to see how how diversity encompassed so much more than race and ethnicity and gender and socioeconomic status, language, religion, LGBTQ. Um, you know, and and I went to the University of Michigan as an undergraduate. And that that really opened my mind beyond my own my own communities. I had a chance to to interact with with um, Orthodox Jewish uh, folks. Um, so that was really a watershed moment for me. Was that opportunity to um, experience the world and understand the world from from people that were were, were different from me? And I, I think that's what makes um, diversity in higher education so special, especially now that our our K twelve schools are are more segregated than they've ever been. Um, I remember having friends that were from Detroit at the University of Michigan, and they had never gone to school with a white person in their entire life. Um, and so it was, it was a, it was a big change. It was a big challenge. Um, you had the transverse folks coming from, you know, elite boarding schools on the East Coast uh, that had had a different experience uh, coming into that diversity. And so uh, that was really a, a watershed moment for me. Uh, was when uh, and why did it take? Why did it take that many years? Um, it's because of how our society has been has been historically structured. I think one other piece here I'll say is that was really the first time that I saw Native Americans in the curriculum. That I saw African Americans in the curriculum besides Martin Luther King. 
um, you know, historically, um, uh, and we studied this in the Harvard Education Review about 10 years ago, um, that um, community, historically marginalized communities have been also marginalized in our curriculum. And you see that with the new curriculums that are emerging out of Hillsdale College and Prager and all these other pieces also. Yeah. So, so both things, um, the experiences and the curriculum. All right. And we'll come back to that because you, the, um, your experience is similar to a lot of people your age and my age uh, that encounter that first look at, at, at identity in, in higher ed. And that's under attack now. And 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 an undergraduate, I mean, high schools, K twelve. It's across the country now. You can't even what what the, the benefits of being a slave in Florida now, and Governor DeSantis uh, supporting that. Uh, it's it's insane. Rose, give us some of that that, that piece. Here we go. We've got the Bronx girl. Tell so, us a little bit about it. So I am I am an elder, and so um, a baby. So there was, a, there was a time growing up in the 60s and, and there's been strife in all my decades, but um, I have experienced more of the segregative work in curriculum more currently than in my upbringing, actually. And I think it's because it was supplemented. You know, we had our home educating ourselves as well as what was um, presented by a lot of liberal white teachers with good intentions, right? Um, and we were in neighborhoods that were not defined by class, but ethnicity. So we had different classes of people. It was, it was like the old definition of ghetto. So it didn't occur to me that the segregation that we had was that bad, except when I saw it on television and it was in our homes, discussions and so on and so forth. Um, I think I think what I've been uh, struggling with is the potential potentiality of the censoring now, yes. the censoring that I didn't experience so much. What I experienced was omission, right? Right, omission. You know, we oh we forgot to tell you, okay. But this is censoring, like oh we're being prevented from telling you, and and that's problematic for me because that's that's fascism coming down the pike, right? And that's it. Uh, right, that's where that's where I am holistically. No problem. Ricardo, Dr. Roser, can you tell us uh, about, about yourself and when you first encountered, you're, you're, you're an immigrant from the Canary Islands to, to, to America, you're a wonderful educator. Tell us about, when did you find yourself? Not Canary. Right, oh, right. Okay. so I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant from Cabo Verde, Cape Verde, ah. small island. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Right, so I, um, you know, I have to say, you know, for me, um, education should be a sort of a radical act of love, you know, but I've never experienced that type of education, you know, coming through the educational system in the United States, you know, for me, it's always been sort of a, a space for erasure, uh, a space of pain, really. Uh, and a lot of the attacks on curriculum, uh, curricula right now, you know, I see these things as in waves, and I experienced it during my time, you know, uh, growing up and going to schools in the United States, elementary and uh, middle and high school, you know. I remember, um, you know, having one uh, professor, well, I'm sorry, professor, one teacher, history teacher. Uh, it was an honors history class. Um, I happened to get into it. My guidance counselor saw that, you know, I had this sort of 
I got into this class and this Steve to her seventh period class that I could actually go home instead of take, taking this, uh, this class. You know, anybody who had study hall seven as a gang member. And not feeling comfortable. Oh, you're breaking up over there. Me in the classroom. Can you hear me? We're, you're breaking up. Your, might want to turn your video off. So and so, you know, I went, uh, instead of going home, I spent time in the library, you know, can you hear me? Yeah, I let heard me turn you're not the video time in the library. Off. That's a dangerous place. Well, At least in Houston. Well, yeah, you know, as a former right, HMC um, employee. So um, I'm spending time in the library. In the we're going to move to Julian, uh, Ricardo, because we're, we're losing you, Choppy, uh, because uh, you're in the car there. Go I, ahead, think for, I think for educators, uh, you you mentioned what's happening in Houston. Um, what what's happening in Houston is that the um, uh, the state of Texas decided that they were going to take over an entire district, um, sixth or seventh largest district in the nation, because one high school missed their test scores by one or two points, which I think suggests that that's not actually the reason why they took over the district. Um, the leadership of the district is now more people of color than it was when I uh, uh, worked and lived in Houston, uh, worked for HISD back in 1999. And they brought in Mike Miles, who um, didn't do so well as a superintendent of uh, Dallas Independent School District. And one of the first decisions that he made as superintendent was to close the libraries, fire the librarians, and turn them into um, uh, disciplinary locations uh, in the schools in Houston. Yeah. And I, I, I just, you know, as a former Houston ISD yeah. employee, um, I, I am just incredulous that that's the first thing you do as as superintendent is close the libraries and and create them as discipline centers. So we we feed that 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 school to prison pipeline right there. Uh, but but and and there's been a 20% reduction. We had some librarians on on a, a previous show, and they said there's been a 20% reduction in resources and librarians in where in black and brown communities, in poor communities. Uh, we they don't stand for that in our Afro community. But I want to I want to share a, a positive piece about how one teacher, one public school teacher, can make a difference. And the research shows that if you've had one black teacher, just one, all, all students will benefit. And I'm a perfect example of that. So Mrs. Stanfield, our high school honors English teacher, uh, an interesting, interesting uh, honors class. And I was a typical football player, I was smart, uh, but you know, school, I didn't think much about it, but Mrs. Stanfield infused Marcus Garvey, infused Bob Marley, infused everything. So I'm a child of the 70s going into high school and the world was exploding around us and everything we read, whether it was Hamlet, whether it was A Tale of Two Cities, whatever it was, she connected it to the communities we lived in. And we, and we lived, I was the last white boy in the neighborhood over there. And she just opened my eyes and, and, the, and the dumb football player who was just, you know, happy to be in the class and say, oh, don't notice me. She made me, she made me open my eyes, just like Carl, just like Ricardo. I had to go to the library. I had to learn. 
who the hell is Marcus Garvey? I had to learn everything about Marcus Garvey because, you know, to free yourself from mental slavery, none but ourselves, you know, had to, but, but just one teacher. And, and, and it comes to me right now, it, I'm beginning to feel that they want to tie the hands mm-hmm. of the Mrs. Stanfields, the Rose Rears. Rose Rears, they want to tie your hands. Tell us, tell us, share something, Rose, about, about those students that you work with. So the classic, my classic example is uh, the frustration that this state has about language learners, right? Um, uh, because their framework, their point of reference is that there should be one superior language and everything else is just impediments to that achievement instead of embracing the, the language that is most supportive of that child. So of course, there's a frustration because the proficiency, the mastery tests are in the English dominant languages and the children barely get to proficiency to qualify, to respond in a way that reflects their true intelligence and their brilliance, right? I mean, think about it. If you come from a home with another language and you have to navigate the English in the wide world, you're already accessing and making strong neuron connections with your brains, right? So the the slap in the face was when they imposed, (laughs) yeah, uh, when they imposed a special master. And that terminology came from the prison system when prisons were not organized enough and they would uh, in, in, in include a special master to put things in order, just like that, that um, superintendent in Texas did, put things in order. And the first thing he did was eliminate the, the very weak but better than nothing transitional bilingual program. And I was removed from my classroom and I had to provide support in the English only classrooms that are, were now crowded with my students and um, paraprofessionals, they hired more paraprofessionals who were bilingual than teachers who were bilingual certified. So again, it was that support role, that secondary role. And that was problematic because children take that in and they already know there's a language of power, right? And, and they feel that internalized oppression of sorts. So I went ahead and I took those children out of those rooms and I went through the dumpsters. All the, They threw out Spanish materials. They threw them out and I went into the dumpsters, retrieved them and hid them, hid them. And then I used them and I waited them out. And I, and I called all the organizations I thought who would be interested in, in making a case for us here. Um, but they were either too shy or not interested. But I walked around with a valise or a, a briefcase of all the data proving that uh, a, a quality bilingual education and in the, in the, in the future, multilingual uh, approaches uh, only enhances everyone, right? So yeah, they did. So they threw out the, the, the Spanish language text uh, and you teach in Wyndham with a predominantly Hispanic population. Uh, 85 to 90%, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, Bobby Sands, a hunger striker from Northern Ireland, uh, ah. who, who died in the 80s, uh, said to, to destroy a people, you need to kill their teachers, their language and their culture. You yep. know, and, 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 you know, this is this is part of it. So throwing out those books. Ricardo, can, tell us what the union's role in this, because you're now you're, you're the union organizer, the union educator. Can you help us? And you probably should mute your video 
and just be yep. on the sound because you were a little choppy before. Right. Can you hear me now, Jesse? Can hear you. All right. Yeah, no, I think the unions have, uh, you know, must have sort of a deep commitment, you know, to justice, a deep commitment to diversity as it, you know, as it comes to, to uh, you know, personnel as well as curriculum. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the union, the, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about what I'm seeing in the labor movement, um, particularly as it relates to education these days. You know, I'm seeing in caucuses uh, that are very progressive in multiple union spaces, really pushing uh, a justice agenda that is not just about business unionism. It's not just about salaries, but it's about bargaining for the common good, right? It's about putting right. things on the table uh, that, uh, you know, is very responsive to communities. You know, as well as educators, you know, we always say that, you know, you know, uh, an educator's uh, working conditions is a student's learning conditions and vice versa, you know, so I'm, I'm really um, excited about what's going on in unions uh, these days, but I think unions have a deep commitment, you know, to this work. Uh, they should be advancing this work for all of the reasons that, you know, have been mentioned. Um, and uh, by Julian, by Rose, you know, um, but, you know, I do say that also, you know, it's not just sort of about diversifying uh, staff. It's also about taking seriously what you mentioned, Jesse, you know, these uh, issues of ideology, this issue of, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, folks are coming from a place where they, they're connecting, you know, education to the community, vice versa. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's... Um, you know, when education systems say they want diversity, they want a particular type of diversity. You know, they want people of color who can be easily domesticated, you know? And uh, the issue of ideology is also critical. And we also have to keep in mind the never lose that, uh, you know, white folks are capable of political clarity, you know? And so we need to continue building that space. So unions have a role, teachers have a role, higher ed has a role in, in this battle. And, and I, I wanna mention Maya Angelou because Maya Angelou said, the more you know your history, the more liberated you are. And that knowing your, your, about your ancestors and where your ancestors comes empowers you. So, so, so I'm wondering, not, maybe I'm not wondering, but isn't this intentional? Isn't this an intentional uh, effort to disempower people of color in the United States of America. Well, Julian, I think, can you help us? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned, Jesse, um, the situation in Florida with the standards in passing and the fact that they have put into the medical school standards uh, the, the, the idea that slavery benefited African Americans. Now, this, I mean, as educators, we know that historically, this is an argument that they've tried to, that's been made since the Civil War. Uh, in fact, the Civil War is about the benefits of slavery, uh, amongst other things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's it's a real challenge that um, the, uh, the curriculum is being politicized. Um, you know, in higher education, we're often talking about uh, freedom of speech. Um, and so, and there's conversations on different sides of the aisle about who's allowed to have speech. Um, and really what you see here is a limitation on speech. Um, 
with the Stop Woke Act, there uh, could be consequences for, for educators. Now, though, that's caught up in the courts, um, uh, of course, um, whether it's actually constitutional um, to, uh, to limit educators in the way that the government is trying to, to limit. But I, I really think you, you started this conversation with an important point which, uh, and I, I wanna go back to Dr. Rosa's comment about bargaining for the common good. Uh, and that really requires coalitions. I mean, that's what you saw back uh, in the civil rights era is you saw academics, you saw the clergy, you saw educators and, and unions and parents and communities coming together. Uh, and I, I think that, um, you know, this these sort of extreme um, uh, uh, attempts to to change uh, history, such as the the the, ben the slavery uh, benefiting. I mean, you also see Texas. Um, um, uh, you know, recently in higher education, you saw a professor who went to I think it was UT um, uh, one of the UT campuses and was as, and was giving a talk, and on her drive back. She received a censure notice, um, and then Texas A&M moved to suspend her for a lecture um, that she gave about public health um, because it was felt that she had criticized the lieutenant governor. And so this is not just a K-12 challenge. Uh, uh, this is also a higher education um, challenge that education should be the place where a free exchange of ideas happens. This is that place. And when government steps in, and says that uh, you know changes the curriculum so that only uh, you know so that there are, are, are false narratives or um, in higher education that faculty aren't able to talk about public health issues or education issues. Um, that's a real challenge, I think, for for our society. Right yes. Turner, I, I'd like to add to um, the point about um, we, I, I'd like us to qualify, especially. Uh, because some, in some cases it was the government that had to intervene to protect us sometimes. So I think we need to call it out clearly because for example, I was in a, an anti-racism workshop and we were doing a circle thing and, and the woman in front of me, black social worker, and she would say, you know, people are like that. I'm like, which people? And then she said, oh, you caught me. Like, yeah, you've got to be very deliberate. So who are we talking about? We're talking about, a particular type of individual who who has this premise of racism and classism and will have will use all the tools that they have in their toolbox or tool bag to manifest it right because if it wasn't for some government intervention uh we wouldn't be having access to certain levels of public education there has been compromises but we got to call them out as we see them and don't let them hide in uh, behind ambiguous categories. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, yeah. yeah. So let me build on that, Rose. I, I don't. I didn't want to say I, I wasn't critiquing government necessarily, but leadership matters, right? Leadership matters in terms of the policymakers that we elect. Leadership Correct. matters in terms of who leads unions. Leadership matters in terms of who leads universities. If you notice in Florida right now, there are many, many open presidential roles because. The governor has figured out there that they look at New College, for example. And so right, leadership right. matters. Absolutely. 
Yeah, New, New College is an example of uh, well, Chris Rufo on the board now. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's an institution that uh, is totally destroyed, Sarasota. It's uh, an amazing institution. But for me, I mean, all of it was on in our institutions. I mean, what we're talking essentially about here, right, is a crisis in democracy. I mean, we cannot call this society a democratic society when the institution where people spend, young people spend eight hours of their day, right, is not democratic. The only way you can have a democratic society is if you have a democratic culture, right? Workplaces need to be democratic. Schools need to be democratic. That means we control for the issues of repression that Rose is talking about, but at the same time, we don't limit, you know, these discourses that are really, you know, responsive to multiple cultures, multiple communities, you know, within our community, you know? Uh, so for me, it's really about democracy. I mean, we cannot have a democratic society if these institutions are so controlled and, and attacked. And I think one of the things, Jesse, you you have three three uh, folks with with um, Latino or Hispanic backgrounds on this call. And one of the things that we're not talking about enough is that K-12 is going to be majority Latino in just a couple of years. Right. And I think that is part of this discussion is that the, 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 the world is rapidly, rapidly changing. And so, like I said, leadership matters. And so you need leaders that are going to make investments in developing relationships with community. Because in Michigan, affirmative action has been illegal since uh, 2006, um, going back to the Supreme Court case that we just saw. And so what that means is, is that places like the University of Michigan, Michigan State, Western Michigan University, we have to invest in relationships. We have to make the investments to create those uh, pathways uh, for different communities into our institutions. And leaders make those decisions on how you're going to invest in what relationships you're going to invest in. And so I, I think that that's a, another really key point that we have to hold our leaders to a high standard. And, you know, I, last time I was on here, Jesse, we were talking about the teacher shortage, right? And we were talking about how successful we had been at Kentucky in terms of quadrupling the number of African-American teachers. But you know, coming to Michigan, again, leadership matters. Um, a governor and a legislature that are gonna be prepared to make radical change. And I'm gonna tell you one radical change that's a really exciting note. The legislature here actually put money into Grow Your Own to help us solve the teacher shortages. We are going to enroll 450 new students in the College of Education this year. And that's because of the leadership that you see from public policymakers to solve problems. So again, leadership matters in terms of tackling problems with diversity, tackling shortage problems, et cetera, et cetera. It matters. And I, I'm sure Absolutely. that and I'm sure we'll hear about that at uh, NPE this october in dc julian mess they promoted you to one of our 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 our, our keynotes so i'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to that i'll see you there um excited to be there i wanted to to talk mentioned i want to focus on positives so i've spent five years teaching on the tohoto Otham reservation uh, outside uh tucson arizona on cells we had a little research project there we had, the, you couldn't have the control group was the whole Otham High School. High school. It, the Otham Nation is the size of Connecticut. So we had multiple high schools and 
So we have them as a control group. They had pretty much the kinds of education that was not culturally responsive. Uh, and then we had one group that I worked with on Saturdays. It wasn't an upward bound program. Uh, what we did was I asked them, what would you like to read? Or what do you think about reading? They said, it's boring. What do you think about writing? That's even more boring. What do you think about school? Well, in one of better words, they said, that stinks, you know? And so I said, what would make it interesting? And they said, we'd, love to, we, we'd like to read about our language, our culture, and our heritage. And we made, I had the opportunity to ship that curriculum in literacy to one that focused on native, native writers, native authors, native uh, history. And trust me, students who supposedly were reading at the sixth grade level were reading Bind Deloria, uh, Scott Mamaday. These are, these are scholars, you know, reading and debating and discussing. And, we, and, and to make it short, when we shifted, we shifted the curriculum to be an invitation to culture, to heritage, to history of who our students were. And the retention rate for those students in, in, in their high school over that five years was 97.6. That control group, the rest of the students, it was 50%. So, and, 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 and what I wanna, I wanna get back to a little bit about what Goldie Mohammed, who wrote, Dr. Goldie Mohammed wrote Cultivating Genius and talked about the black intellect of the 19th century. And, and then she had to do a follow-up book because she said, you know what? Doing this work is all about the joy. It brings joy to both teachers and students. So my students responded, uh, our students on the author reservation uh, stayed in school, performed, went to college, did well all because they found joy in, in, in their own history, in their own language, in their own culture. And what was I doing? I was teaching English. So we, all we needed to do was read and write. Why not read and write about ourselves? So that's just one example. Uh, let's, let's, Ricardo, tell us a little bit about, you said you were working uh, in, in MTA, the Massachusetts Teachers Association Union as, as a union educator? What's that about? Well, yeah, I run the training and professional learning division, uh, Jesse. So we do education for staff. We also do education for educators throughout uh, the state. On uh, issues of justice, you know, I have, uh, I have a new anti-oppression education specialist that I just brought on. So we infuse that throughout the education that we do with educators in the state. Um, some really exciting stuff, you know, going on here. I mean, there's... Um, I mean, currently, I can talk about stuff in K through 12, but we're doing some interesting work in higher ed as well in doing um, professional development, professional learning work uh, with faculty and professional staff in higher ed. I think in many higher ed institutions, you know, professional development is in the hands of administrators, you know, or the provost office, you know. <laughs> uh, so there's an attempt to take that off. Uh, and, and to try and have unions actually control this space as well. Um, there's lots of uh, ideologies. A lot of what we have in K through 12 that's moving through K through 12 also moves in higher ed. And very often these are done in professional development spaces, you know. So that's one work that's uh, important in the union. Uh, we've been doing work around legislation, trying to intervene in sort of the certification process and working on reciprocity, for example, right? Why not make it easier for educators in Puerto Rico, for example, to have reciprocity, you know, educators who come from Puerto Rico, I should say, 
why not uh, you know Commonwealth uh, status spaces? Why just different states? You know, uh, and that's one way to bring about more diversity in our schools. So we're, we're doing that type of work. Um, so there's a lot of that going on through the union. I mean, this is the work that we do uh, every day. Um, yeah, uh, I, I hope I addressed the question. I don't think I addressed the entire you, question. You, you did. You did. Yeah. It's the union's work. If we, we can't, part of our unions today are not just negotiating for higher wages or, right. or benefits. We're, we're, we're negotiating for, for the greater good, the common good. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's a whole new world that just, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I, I just finished my community service for my civil disobedience arrest for the moral budget protests in Hartford uh, with, with our unions over there. But, but let's, I want to go move to Rose because Rose, uh, tell us about your political work because we know we've heard a little bit about your teaching, but you're also, I don't even know how you have a life. Could you uh, tell us well, about this? This is this is our lives, right? This is, this our, is lives, our lives, right? And this and we it. we encounter joy with all small all small wins. Um, so I'm in the quiet corner of Connecticut, and um, I don't know how to describe the the comfortable Democrats. And I could not be relating to them because they were way too comfortable in the status quo. And there's something called opportunity hoarding, and uh, also. Uh, Selective incivility. Those are two phrases you might come across in, in your future exchanges. And so I had to hop off the, that Dem train and establish myself as distinct um, as I was with my bilingual certification, distinct. So as a Working Families Party member, the focus is on all the universalities of equity in terms of the workforce as well. And so going out to the community and figuring out um, why is it that your particular employer does not give you the time that you need to do your parent-teacher conferences or you participate in school events on whatever level you can, right? Um, there, there has to be calling them out again because there was a time when there was that kind of flexibility, but then it was taken away. I am in a building that used to have showers, a full kitchen for home economics, a kiln for art. I'm in a building that had those things when the building was housing predominantly white children. And now all those spaces are storage or support staff meeting rooms, right? And so the point here is, is what is it that we, we can do to re regain those things and invest in ourselves Someone took it away, just like the public pools. Remember the issue of the public pools? Yes. That if they had to be integrated, they were no longer going to be built. Well, that's pretty much the, the filter that I see in my political work, in my union work, and, and uh, in my professional setting. So and that's the lens. That's it. And we should make no mistake that this is intentional at the very time that the U.S. becomes a more increasingly diverse population. Mm. At the very time, uh, black and brown and immigrants and, and, uh, are rising up, becoming the provosts, becoming uh, professors, becoming elected officials. At the very time this is happening, they take away the art, the music, 
the libraries, uh, take away a lot of PE. And when you think about art, music, and PE, those are the first remedies for trauma. They are, they are treatments that therapists will give. And we have students, I believe, living in trauma in our, in our, in our poorest schools in the country. I, I firmly uh, understand and support the understanding of the framework that Michelle Alexander introduced in the prison to school pipeline. So it's intentional. Julian, you, could you share about cloak, cloaking inequity and, and yeah. how it influenced your work? Yeah. Well, my North Star is, is making a difference for people, making a difference uh, for communities and, and, and for, the, or for the world. And of course, we just heard Ricardo and Rose talk about how, how they're impacting, a war, impacting the world. But I'm a very action-oriented person. I'm the kind of person that wants to see uh, re results. Um, and so I, I think it's really important. I, I just hope the audience is encouraged to not be afraid to engage in work that will result in change for your community or for your state. Um, th that taking action is a vital step towards a fairer and more inclusive society. And I, I remember years ago when I was a junior professor at the University of Texas at Austin, um, I had uh, been asked by Kip to take a look at why African-American students were leaving their school in Austin. And so uh, a buddy of mine, we're going to write a paper about it. And then they went on Oprah and in Oprah, they talked about how how good they were doing with African-American students. And then they told us that we couldn't do the study anymore. And so um, that seems a little suspicious to me. Um, so I, I went to the Texas data and, and took a look and uh, published a paper that said that, you know, 40% of the KIPP students at the time uh, never advanced to graduation. So the idea that 100% of the African-American kids were going to college, 100% of 60% doesn't add up to 100%. Um, even though that's what they were saying at the time. Um, and so I published that paper and then Kip started to uh, put out press releases uh, criticizing the study, not really criticizing the methodology of the data because those were facts, but but criticizing the study. And so that's when I started to write a blog called Cloaking uh, Inequity, which a million readers later, 200 countries later, um, uh, you know, I was writing this blog because of, of a dispute that I was having um, uh, with Kip, um, but it became a community project um, and it really uh, gave voice. One person can actually make a difference. And then I ended up in California uh, working with the NAACP as education chair and then later um, dean at the University of Kentucky of Education and, and education chair in Kentucky, all because I had taken that step to make change. Um, and now we're doing this work together as a team uh, at the university level. Um, now this, you cannot take this number to the bank, but it looks like our Latinx enrollment will be up somewhere between eight to 9% uh, this fall. So already the team here is, is making change. Um, now that could all change by census as, as folks know, but we're moving in the right direction. And, and that work is done um, as a community. The provost doesn't do that. Uh, the faculty, the staff, um, we're working together towards, towards our values. And, and so making change is really my North Star. We love that North Star. And it is no mistake 
that I ask the three of you here because this has been your North Star all along, working on the things that really matter. Re Julian, we love uh, cloaking equity. We love everything you write. Uh, you, you are our, our, our golden data junkie. We love it because I can turn around and say, <laughs> you think you know the research, let me tell you. And it's because of the work that you've done. Uh, the same thing with Ricardo, same thing with Rose. Uh, Ricardo's the professor who lives so much the activism in, in, at the university uh, that he decided to be the union person there. Uh, Ricardo, tell us what we should be doing. Rose and I are union members. Tell us what we should be doing, our union should be doing. Think we have them? Well, well, maybe we better go to Rose. Rose, well, first, not, okay. first and I'm foremost, not. I admire, I admire M MTA. I do. Uh, Mary, mm -hmm. uh, Mary is, is a, a colleague, and um, I, I followed them when um, about two two leaderships ago. Because yeah, they do, and they have open negotiations. Connecticut's still hard up and tight, you know, and uh, they've been more universal in their approach. So, you know, kudos for you, uh, Professor Rocha. Yeah, no, as far as what we should be doing, I like for every educator in the country to understand, um, you know, that you are um, part of the union, you know, you are the union. And so, you know, get involved, I mean, move projects within the union, uh, move programs. I mean, all of the discussions we're having here about advocacy around uh, bottom line is that I don't think we can do in this country, right? Any powerful project uh, absent, you know, the labor movement. Um, I think that the labor movement needs to be involved. I think that that's where you have the resources. Uh, that's where you have the structures where you can really move uh, some powerful stuff. Now, I'm not saying that all unions are the same. Obviously, we have local unions that are still sort of business-minded that are uh, not moving a justice project along, uh, but we have plenty of unions um, these days that are. And the question is, you know, to, the, the, the thing is, is to, to work with them and to, to continue building, you know, realize that you are the union and get involved. And and if we think about this union piece, Connecticut's a perfect example mm. of, of, of not being, not empowering our unions. We yeah. have 160 something different uh, district unions who, yeah. who don't get the opportunity to yeah. come together in a, in a statewide force. They do have, have some, some meetings and stuff, but, but they're not one force. So if you right. think about the, an education, a public education system where one place has all the bells and whistles and teachers aren't right. under stress and learners aren't under stress. And another place, the uh, teachers are being beaten down, students are under stress. Uh, you, 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 you can't have a unified voice when there's 160 something different union presidents. Rose, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What, what could we do in Connecticut? Well, wait, there's, there's CEA and then there's AFT and AFT is a multi, multi-division uh, union, right? Uh, and, and CEA is educators only. And so already there's a riff and, and that doesn't make any sense that they don't seem to collaborate more. The other piece is that um, we failed in our union uh, education historic, historically and also changing its trajectory. 
we failed in educating and, and explaining what stewardship is because there's a lot of approach to uh, the profession as uh, consumers perhaps, like, well, what does the union do for me? And we go, no, no, the union is as good as you know your contract and the rights to a fair uh, labor practices because this is a profession. So we, we have many levels of issues to address in Connecticut. One is like shifting the paradigm from consumerism to stewardship, right? Then from uh, pass, passive uh, uh, observation to action orientation towards this agreed upon universality of social justice and equity, right? Like, that's huge, that's huge. And, and because we already started out with such a uh, big gap in equity, uh, the COVID response, we're taking longer to catch up than the rest of the nation because we already established ourselves as having that gap uh, prior, you know? And so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a hard ask for sure. All right. So, no problem, I'm gonna bring us down to because Harry's gonna somewhere around, I think like uh, 10, 56 or something, he's gonna say like 30 seconds. So I want us to, to think about, I see this work as my joy. I don't see social justice as a burden. I don't see sharing diverse books as, 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 as some kind of labor. I see it as sheer joy. I'm with Goldie Mohammed. This is the joy of my life. And yeah. I don't think I'm, I'm 68, I could retire. My wife tells me I should, but why would I retire when I'm immersed in the joy of this work? So yeah. our last 90 seconds is sort of like, tell us about that joy of this work because this is joyful. So let me let me say, um, can I just give you a quote from Martin yes. Luther King? Go he ahead. said, Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must remember that intelligence is not enough. Intelligence plus character, <laughs> That is the goal of true education. The complete education gives one not only power of concentration, but worthy objectives upon which to concentrate. And the reason why you can't retire, Jesse Walking Man Turner, is because the work that you do is consequential. It's moral. Your course of action is moral. And so I think what we have to think about is what is the consequentialism of our lives? What is the course of our lives? Who are we? And so I think that this work, it's moral, it's just, we are trying to create opportunity within communities. And so Jesse, you cannot retire because you are consequential. <laughs> well, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Uh, Ricardo, come on. Tell us that. that I tell you, man. Fun. This is joyful. The joy, right? The joy for me comes from knowing that the work that I do, I mean, stands on the shoulders of so many that have come before. So that historical memory, Jesse, for me is critical. I mean, that's where I find the joy every time when we hit obstacles in organizing. You know, I think about those times when, you know, similar organizations and people hit, you know, those obstacles and they were able to move through it learn something from it, you know, and learning from you, Jesse, and the work that you've done over the years. Uh, Julian, no disrespect to administrators at uh, at and Julian is doing brilliant work as an administrator and has been doing it for years. I mean, standing on the shoulders of Rose and all of you, I mean, is, 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 is what brings me joy. 
and, and being in your presence and building together. This is this is what I want us want the world to know. This is joyful roles. You have to. I, I, it's been over a decade now. Tell us about it. You've got now. I think the joy is knowing that um, that there are like-minded people with, with the best of intentions and courage, and that we don't need to struggle alone, and that the sweat equity that you have in making something that you that you see before you better is just joyful enough. And uh, I want to remind everyone that we are not, we should not be working in isolation. Don't work in isolation. And that, that goes along with what Ricardo and Julian have been saying. I, when I think about, you know, when I think about the attacks coming out of, out of Florida and Texas and across the country uh, against uh, black and brown people, history against truthful history, I mean, there are no benefits to being a slave. We don't need that over yeah. there. We don't, it, it drives me crazy. But I do know, I think what brings me joy is, remember in Hamilton, there's a line. I just recently went to see Hamilton about a month ago. My wife took me for, for our uh, anniversary. No, it was for my birthday. But there's a line in, in, in one of the songs where Hamilton says, what is legacy? He says, just planting the seeds in the garden you'll never see. And mm. that's the joy. I see mm. that right now. There, there, there's no doubt in my mind. Like when, when Martin said, you know, I've been to the promised land. Mm. I may not get there with you, but I'll be there when you get there. Legacy. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get your head. Cause this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Yeah, this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go Way too long, we faced them storms, now you gon' face the dawn